Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of Runners Only with Dom Harvey, brought to you by Radix Nutrition. Coming up, Sir Ashley Bloomfield. I sent uh, now Prime Minister uh, Chris Hipkins, I've changed his number to PM in my phone. I sent him a text when, when he got uh, got the role and he'd sent me a lovely text at the end of the year, last year, and, and when I got my New Year's honour, but I said, oh, well done, you know, and, and great stuff. And he, and he sent this text back saying, yep, thanks very much. It was your eyebrows that got me here. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Ashley Bloomfield, otherwise known as Dr Bloomfield, was the Director General of Health when COVID came to New Zealand in early 2020. 20. Dr. Bloomfield became one of the most recognisable faces and names in New Zealand for his daily 1pm briefings on TV with the Prime Minister, which became, for a time, essential viewing. We sat down for this podcast conversation on the third anniversary of New Zealand's initial COVID lockdown. He turned up to my place on a bike, wearing a correctly fitted helmet, of course, and we talk about a lot of stuff. We chat about his marathon running experiences and why he is taking a break from mountain biking, his early life growing up and meeting his wife Libby at med school, the anxiety of facing the media at 1pm every day and the terror of doing radio interviews with Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB, his relationship with Jacinda Ardern during the pandemic and their relationship now, some of the lighter viral moments uh, from that whole time, including the spread your legs moment, his knighthood, and much, much more. We had limited time, so there was a lot of stuff that I would have liked to cover that we didn't get around to, but I can't thank Dr. Bloomfield enough for being so generous with his time, experience, and stories. I loved his company and our chat. He came in with really good energy, and I really hope you guys like this too. Thanks to my friends at Radix Nutrition for sponsoring this episode. They pride themselves on being the best in the world. Their products, made in the Waikato and shipped anywhere, R-A-D-I-X, that's Radix Nutrition. If you haven't tried their stuff, you should give them a go. They have an average rating of 4.83 out of 5 from 836 reviews. It should be a 5 out of 5, but you know, you're never going to please everyone. So their website again, radixnutrition.co.nz. All right, let's get into it. Runners only with Dom Harvey and Daddy Bloomfield. Sorry, that slipped out. I meant Sir Ashley Bloomfield. Hey, runners only. Yeah, yeah, let's get it started. Hey, hey, this is runners only with Dom Harvey. Fast paced, slow and steady. Anywhere you coming. Just want to connect for everyone who loves running. This is runners only. Yeah, yeah let's get it started. Hey, hey. This is Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Uh, fast paced, slow and steady, any way you coming. Uh, just want to connect for everyone who loves running. Hey, Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Sir Ashley Bloomfield. G'day. Morena, good to be here. <laughs> oh, mate, it's fabulous to have you here. How, how does it sit with you being called Sir? Oh, yeah, well, people mostly come up to me now and say, well, do we call you Sir Ashley, or is it Dr. Ashley, or is it Professor? I just say, just call me Ashley, you know, so this is New Zealand. Um, occasionally the titles get gets used, but uh, for the most part, uh, sort of, I can go the whole, you know, days without even remembering that it's a thing, yeah. 
Right. Well, we we got to get to that knighthood stuff. There's so much um, ground to cover with you. First of all, the podcast is called Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Uh, I know you have a relationship with running. Yep. You you, st- you still run? Your, your preferred sort of form of exercise these days is mountain biking, I believe. Well, I enjoy time on the mountain bike. Of course, about six months ago, as happens every now and then, there are two sorts of bikers, those who have fallen off their bike and those who are going to fall off their bike. Six months ago, I was in the first group and I broke my thumb uh, coming off the bike. So uh, it's, it's mostly gentle biking now and that's actually given me a bit of an opportunity to get back into a bit of running Um, nothing too serious yet but trying to rebuild the fitness as far as i am aware you've done the rotorua marathon twice i've done it three times three times yep and uh yeah so i've done a marathon three times in my life and all times it was uh it was rotorua twice with mates and the first and the third time the second time i went down there to try and um, do the best time i could and managed to smash out three hours so that's that was the pinnacle of my running career and it's been downhill since three hours and three hours and you know kind of zero was just right really yep no desire to go back and try for a sub three like sub sub three is like the mount everest for an everyday runner well i was in uh i was in you know 20s 30s there you know i'm a little bit older than that now so yeah running's a great thing and and you know the thing i love about running is it doesn't matter where you are and i don't go anywhere without my running shoes because you can just you've got a set of running shoes you can exercise and it's such an efficient form of keeping fit and keeping the old cardiovascular health there so you know it's one of the things i really love about it as well as the endorphins of course yeah i i agree Three hours is a legit time. It's a fun- I can't believe you didn't want to go back and go for a time that had a two in front of it. Oh, also, well, three hours in Rotorua. Rotorua is a notoriously it, hilly course. It's a pretty hilly course, yeah. It's a sub uh, three on a flat anywhere. Yeah, well, for me, uh, it was sort of like uh, I felt like I'd reached the pinnacle and then uh, it could have all been downhill from there. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, ta- I'll take the win. Yeah. Okay, so we are recording this on um, late March 2023. And uh, I-, I was thinking about it on my run this morning. It was exactly three years ago that things were turning to shit, quite frankly. And uh, I suppose this is when you became like well-known in New Zealand. So what are we now, 22nd of March? 22nd of March. You're right, this this week period, you know, we're we're right, well, we're sort of right near the end of it. But if we go back to last week, the border shut on the, if it was this time three years ago, the border shut to everybody except Kiwis, citizens and, and permanent residents returning on the Thursday. Saturday, the PM at the time, Jacinda Ardern, made that announcement to the nation about the alert level framework, and you know it was a big, it was in a big address to the nation, uh, and said we're going to be in alert level two for a couple of weeks. Well, Sunday everything changed because we could see actually two weeks was was too long, and Monday the announcement was, okay, people, we're in alert level three, and Wednesday, which is basically today, the day, you know, we, mm. as we talk, mm. we go into a full lockdown. Uh, so. And here's the point, things were turning to custard overseas and we had an opportunity, if we acted quickly, to avoid the same here and by goodness, um, uh, there, there, not everything went right over the next two or three years, but that was one decision that was really well-timed. Yeah, yeah. The mo- I mean, it was a surreal time for everyone, but for, I'm thinking, you know, for me, it meant going to the supermarket and seeing people panic buying, you know, toilet paper yeah. and um, canned food. But uh, for you, I guess it was, um, a, 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 you know, just a whirlwind of a time for a completely different reason. 18-hour days, 20-hour days, what? Well, they were pretty long days. I think the, the key thing was, um, for me, and as you've alluded to, what, what transpired to be the key role that I played was was the, the communica- public communication alongside either the Prime Minister or, or a Minister. And I had to just 
focus my my uh, my work and my life on that. So I handed over quite a few of my responsibilities to other colleagues. Uh, I had a chief executive role at the Ministry of Health. I handed that you know that side of it over to someone because that focus that was required, the mental and physical effort that was required to prepare for and kind of see through those daily uh, stand-ups and then, you know, there was a bit of a recovery period afterwards, that was really the big focus. And, of course, when we started them back at the end of January, we had no idea that mm. they were going to become such an important part of of the communication with the public and of sort of rallying people. I use this uh, definition of leadership as being a collective call to action. And it was, you know, that... The, the daily stand-ups were how people kept in touch with what we needed to do collectively to to uh, stay ahead of the virus. Yeah, and there was, uh, I think, 307 of them that you did at the end, those stand-ups, those 1pm briefings. There's so much ground to cover, and we will get to that. But first of all, Director General of Health, like, what, what does that mean? Because in my entire life, I think you're, you're probably the only Director General of Health that I could name. Well, that's right. Uh, it's not usually a role that anyone knows that it's there, let alone who's in the role. Is that, so, is that how it should be? Well... If, if you have a dream run as Director General Well, that's right. You know, I obviously <laughs> didn't read the fine print on my contract very hard. But, you know, th- this is the thing. I mean, all government departments, ministries, whether it's education, social development, uh, you know, primary industries, they've all got a chief executive. And some of those roles uh, have got quite sort of um, old-fashioned, anachronistic titles, Director General of Health. You've got the Comptroller of Customs. Uh, you know, there's the, the, the Commissioner of, uh, of IRD. So there are specific titles for a number of these roles, but you're also the Chief Executive of that organisation. And I guess the, the role of Director General of Health is there are two parts to it. One is you and your organisation are the principal advisors to government around health policy and health matters, but also the role sort of leads the health system. And given it's a pretty complex system, um, that's a, it's a big role, even mm. in peacetime. It's a, right. it's a huge and complex role. It's not very often you open the newspaper, pandemic or no pandemic, and you don't find health either on the front page or, or fairly close to it. Okay, so the Director of General of Health is always a busy job. It's, it's okay. always yeah. a huge yeah. job, really. Let's go right back to the beginning. So you were born in Napier in the late 1960s. Um, school teacher, mum, military dad. Yeah. So, well, military dad part time. He was my my mother was a primary school teacher, and my dad, who was from a farm in Southern Hawkes Bay, Onga Onga, um, you know, real rural upbringing there in Danny Burke Boys High. He was a mechanic. He he got a mechanic's apprenticeship, uh, but like a lot from his generation, you know, never never had tertiary education, but clearly was was smart and had ambition and um, and that kind of his career actually progressed and when he finished he was the chief executive of Mitsubishi Motors New Zealand so That's right. know, it, was it in came the, from the shop floor right right to that role yeah. yeah yeah so so what was his role in the military well he was uh he, he did his compulsory military training and, okay. and didn't enjoy it very much but but also uh saw the potential uh, of being in the territorials and he joined he was in in the infantry and he rose through the ranks and became a lieutenant colonel he was commander of one of New Zealand's infantry battalions before he finished up in the late 70s and you know little known fact I actually followed in his footsteps and I've done officer training in the late 80s and wasn't commissioned into the medical corps I was commissioned as an infantry officer and I did that for a number of years um, actually based here at the battalion in Auckland and uh, you know, again, all these life experiences shape who you are, mm. and and so when you're put in these kind of really challenging crisis type situations, t- 
to be honest, some of the training and experience and the degree to which I was pushed during officer training, you know, was actually incredibly helpful. Mm. Do, you, do you feel like you got both um, your parents' traits? I suppose the, the nurturing side from your mum being a, a school teacher and, you know, the, I suppose the, the strict business side from your dad being you know, a military man? I'd say I did, and you know, both my parents are dead now. Uh, my mum passed in 2008, and dad about five years ago, and in, in 20 uh, started 2018. And uh, I feel, you know, I think about them every day. I feel yeah. them every day, and it's funny because I'm close to my brother and sister, and we see them in each other, and often joke <laughs> about it. But you're right. And my mother, being a primary school teacher, you know, we, we kind of got a little that that head start in life because she was interested in teaching us to read and and so on and of course she was very interested in us doing as well as possible through our education and uh, without being pushy because neither of them were pushy but they were just really supportive and gave us every opportunity so your dad wasn't strict I'd imagine a military dad he he, he was but um, if anything uh, more that uh, like many of his generation he didn't know how to show affection Mm. And the wonderful thing I saw was when he had grandchildren, he and often this happens, especially men of that generation, that was when he, he learnt to show physical affection and emotional, yeah. you know, respond yeah. emotionally, not just to his grandchildren, but to his children as well. And so, you know, our relationship with him once we had our own children was quite different. And it was a lovely thing, actually. And I'm so pleased he got, you know, that that was something that he was able to enjoy in, in his life. Yeah. Yeah, that's so funny that eh? I think it's a product of the generation. I'm, I'm just a few years behind you. My uncles, they, they, they if you were naughty, they could spank you. <laughs> like, oh, totally, yeah, yeah. Anyone was up for a spanking. And I never saw my uncle John, who was a dairy farmer, never saw him cry once. Now you'll see him at a 21st, a 50th, whatever the function is. Yeah. He'll be bored. He'll be blubbing away. Yeah. Oh, my father was the same. You know? And again, I think it was a lovely thing that these men of that generation who didn't necessarily experience it when they were children, you know, that physical and emotional uh, interaction and affection with their parents. That they were able to to you know to experience that uh, in their later life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally, let some walls down and show a bit of totally, vulnerability. Yeah. So you grew up in Tawa. Yeah, Tawa was where we shifted. I was six years old. We shifted to Tawa. Big move south. And to be honest, my father applied for a job in Wellington. He was quite happy as service manager at what was called Townsend Motors in Napier, but it was my mother that prompted him. And one of the reasons was she went to she did her teacher training in Wellington and just loved the place and she just wanted to go back. So she. Got him to apply for a job down there, and uh, and we'd make you know we all, we loaded the car up, put the cat in the in the cage, and then uh, off we we tootled down on the Hillman Superminx to Tawa, where I you know did did my my growing up. Mm, and it seems like you were you're a good kid. Um, first fifteen, head prefect in the school production for Oklahoma. Were you like a, a nerdy kid, a goody two shoes? People from your school year that didn't like you, what's like what's the worst thing they could say about you? Oh gee, uh, I I don't. I don't think I've no, ever heard. Was, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say yeah. a bad word about you. Well, well, I, I make no mistake. I wasn't a goody two shoes. You know, I mean, I got into trouble, including his head prefect. I dare say, but uh, do you like what? Yeah. Oh, just you know, a uh, <laughs> little bit of um, you know misbehaviour in the chemistry lab with the water bottles, uh, <laughs> which uh, the teacher didn't take too kindly to, and a few other things. Okay. But the point here is, you know, and you've described some things. I just loved, and this is one of the sacrifices my parents did make. We lived in Tower. Tower College was a good college, but they sent us to uh, to Scots, my brother and myself. Um, you know, big trek across town, train and bus, and I mean that was a, an experience in itself uh, every day. 
but when it came to secondary schooling, we had they had intended us to come back to Tawa, but we just had settled into Scots, and the mm. opportunities there were were manifold. Um, you know, we had uh, the, the sporting and the cultural things. I was in the pipe band, I was in the choir, I was in the school productions. I played the flute. I, you know, put we put together a school band, uh, you know, rock band with some mates. I loved sport, and of course, you could do athletics and you could do swimming and rugby. And I was useless at cricket, but we had a bit of a social team. So. I just think the opportunity. I was a jack of all trades, and so I think, um, you know, my school years, and I've got a, I'm still really close to a number of guys from my from my school year. Uh, we get together quite often, and um, just a, you know, really, I have great memories of that time. Mm. God, it seems like you were just a phenomenal kid. Uh, like I went to um, Palmer's North Boys High School, and uh, the the guys in the first fifteen were like very very good rugby players, but very few of them were really intelligent. So there was like um, those sort of jocks, and then there was the intelligent people that were nerds. But it feels like you had the theatre aspect going on, the sport aspect, the intelligence. Well, uh, you know, I guess I was, I was uh, blessed. I was, I was, you know, reasonably <laughs> smart. But also, again, and I put a lot, of, I give a lot of the credit to my mother, and she created opportunities. You know, I can remember for years as a kid trekking along to piano lessons and thinking, "Why am I doing this?" <laughs> and oh my goodness. And then guitar lessons, and then she really loved the flute, so she asked me to you know, le- t- take up learning the flute. But I tell you what, I, you know, a few years down the track, I just was so grateful that she made me do that. Yeah. And I was always interested in sport. And you know what it's like as a kid in those days? I mean, Tawa, we ruled the streets. We we were out the whole, you know, after school, you were out on the streets on your bike. You would build trolleys and you'd race them up and down mm. the, the street. Um, you know, a bit hair raising, I have to say at times. <laughs> but you. We had the bush over the road, so we were always outside as well. So you know we were fit, and and uh, and then you know you could you you'd have an expression of that by through playing your rugby or your yeah. cricket or, or or running or whatever it might be. You wanted to be a pilot, I believe, until you were about ten, and then yeah, um... I was pretty keen on that, and uh, I, that stayed with me right through probably till I was about fourteen, and then uh, a visit to the hospital one day on a sort of a you know an open sort of thing, and um, I just thought, oh, maybe maybe medicine's the thing. And and then that really shaped my last few years at school because you had to do all three sciences, so that was good. I still managed to keep up um, some other things. I did I did Russian through. As Scots was one of the few schools in the country at that time that taught Russian, so uh, I did Russian, a bit of French, and so on. But you know, really started to, had to focus on the sciences, and then. Uh, managed to get just enough marks to scrape into medical school and came up here to Auckland. Why medicine? What was it? An episode of Shortland Street? What? Oh, Why, well, uh, this was pre-Shortland yeah, Street, right, mate. Yeah. I'd say, no, just... Uh, General it Hospital. Just, it was just, you know, being in the hospital and talking to people and seeing... And then, you know, it was... Um, I'd been brought up in the church, uh, so that was quite a big shaper of my values. And, you know, the, the, the thing about um, just, you know, kindness and looking after other people and, and caring for others, I guess, was a was a sort of a value base that I had yeah. and so it fitted well with a with um, with the opportunity to do medicine. Yeah. What's your religion? Well, uh, now I, th- I say people say, "Oh, so you've got a faith?" Well, I've got a faith, but not a traditional one now. But you know, I'm, I'm a very eclectic mix. I was brought mm. up in the Baptist church, and Tawa had an incredibly strong Baptist church, uh, and very musical. Uh, so a lot of the music I, I uh, experienced was through the church. It was a fantastic opportunity. I went to, uh, so uh, Baptist upbringing. Went to a Presbyterian school. Uh, my, my wife's now a, a lay chaplain and, and, and very active in our local Anglican church. Mm. Uh, one of the kids is Baptist is christened as an Anglican to a Presbyterians and so on, so an eclectic mix. What I would say is um, 
in terms of you know my life, those Christian values are the things that have really kind of shaped who I am. And uh, I talk now, you know, when I do my leadership talk, I talk about values. And the one that's top of the list is kindness. And yeah. if you look at all the world's major religions, kindness is an absolute fundamental principle. It's about doing things for other people without expecting reciprocity. And it's kind of what distinguishes us as humans, mm. actually, from other species. That we do that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny you should say that. I, I had um, Adam Perori sitting in this chair last week on the podcast, and at the end of the chat I said to him, oh, you're, you're, you're really kind. And uh, he, he had like a nervous laugh. And then we got talking about the word kind, and it's like in, in my 20s I, I would have like bristled at the thought of anyone calling me yeah. kind, but now it's like I'll take it as the highest compliment. Oh, absolutely I think agree. you're doing well yeah. if – yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, I make it really clear. I say to people, I'm a fully paid up member of the Kindness Club, actually. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, uh, there's just such good evidence, actually yeah. really good evidence about the importance of kindness and also for your own well-being, acts of kindness to other people, incredibly supportive of your own mm. mental and, and physical and, and emotional well-being. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so how, how brutal is medicine school? You see, so you qualify, and then um, don't half the people get kicked out after the first year. Well, it's, it's, a, like it's a lot harder now than right. it was. I would say, you know, my, my mates who I went through medical school, and I often say to each other, "Oh, we'd never have got in now." It's, oh, you would. Though, you, yeah. you know, it's that, that first year. Yeah. There's huge number of kids who are keen to get into medicine, and at both Otago and Auckland, they do that first year health sciences, but the you know only a small proportion of them really get in, and so then those others. Ha- go on to do other other degrees and many of them do other health professional degrees which is fantastic once you're in though it's uh it's a very high retention rate yep it's pretty it's pretty tough it's hard work but you know i've got our two oldest kids have just studied engineering and i tell you what that's four really busy really hard years it's it's not an easy degree and i know because i've got a niece and a nephew who've done or are doing law as well it's hard work that first year of law here in auckland a lot of kids do the first year, but not 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 a huge proportion get through into the second. So it's it's a thing with a lot of those professional degrees, and medicine's no different. So you do medicine, then um, at what point do you decide to go into public health? Because surely no one's studying medicine for seven or eight years to go, you know what, I'm going to be a public servant. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> you know, I can remember telling my parents, and they're going, what? <laughs> what? You're going to study what? But, but, you know, what about being a surgeon or something? Uh, yeah, I just, mid-90s, and a, and a critical thing was a good mate of mine from medical school had, because had, I took a year off in the middle, so I ended up in, in, in the year behind, which was great for finding a wife, because my wife was in that year, and we, we got together and got married in our final year, so uh, that was a lovely thing. But uh, this mate of mine was a year ahead, and he, he said, oh, I, I'm on the public health training scheme. I think you'd enjoy this. So I had a bit of a look at it and thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. I loved my clinical medicine. I really actually enjoyed being in the hospital. I did a bit of general practice. Mm. Uh, but I decided public health was the thing, and, you know, uh, the rest was history. Well, well, actually, I did most of my public health training here in Auckland, and then towards the end of it, I, th- I said to my wife, um, I'd just like to get some experience in the policy setting. So let's go to Wellington for six months to round out my training. So we went down for six months and we're still there 25 years later. Mm. You know, I just loved that it was the nexus between public health and public policy. And I just found the environment stimulating and invigorating. And as my my wife says to me, I can never work. Everything's too grey, you know, because medicine's a very sort of black and white here are the here's the here are the symptoms. Here's the diagnosis. We'll do some tests. Bumpfer. Next, next, please. But 
public policy and public health, it's a long-term game. You've got to be tenacious. And it's also, it's about the art of the possible. So... Uh, anyway, I just love the, mm. the Wellington environment and, and state. And I suppose you, you got the chance to help a lot of people rather than just like individuals. That's exactly it. It's right. that thought that – and so an example, in, uh, not so much now, but in early in my career in the, in the noughties, I was heavily involved in tobacco control. And I can remember it was 20 years ago that the legislation to create smoke-free workplaces was passed. And at the time, there wasn't even 50% support for that. Within three months – even 70% of even smokers supported it because we suddenly I mean can you remember the days of going out into <laughs> yeah, pubs I and, can. And, and cafes yeah, I can. and you would come home reeking of smoke <laughs> or you'd go to work and people would be smoking and, and you tell our kids now and you know they it seems of, outrageous they can go days without even seeing a smoker you know, mm. and, uh, this is a thing now in, in New Zealand. Uh, it's different in Europe. Having just been in Geneva last month, you walk down the street still. Yes, no smoking inside workplaces, but you, you can. You just walk through this cloud of smoke as you walk down the street. It's quite unpleasant. Well, even yeah, even like if you're flying some planes around, in, you know, in New Ze- on the New Zealand fleet, there's still planes that have the old um, ashtrays. The old in ashtrays, the, exactly. It's crazy. It is Imagine crazy. someone smoking on a plane. Yeah, and, and so you know, now here we are. In the time I, I was working in it, we, you know, we had really high mm. rates of smoking by our year 10 students, fourth formers, and we do a survey every year. Now, 95 to, you know, over 95% of them, of all ethnicities, boys and girls, have never even touched a cigarette. Whereas back in around 2000, it was sort of 60% of them had at least tried mm-hmm. it. And, you know, for Māori girls, it was really high. Yeah. So huge change, huge benefits for public health, big intergenerational um, benefits. And then, of course, there are new risks that come along. Vaping potentially. Oh, you love vaping though, don't you? Yeah, I've heard I'm, I'm, you're mad about the vape. You love a watermelon vape. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, I don't need to be mad about it because you, you, you sit there. We were at WOMAD over the weekend, and you know, I thought, oh, this place is, you know, I thought there's going to be big clouds of marijuana yeah. smoke hovering over, and it wasn't. It was vape, you know, it was vape clouds. Oh, yeah. So when you see someone in traffic vaping in their car, it's the most obnoxious thing, isn't oh, it? Oh, you see these big clouds of, of uh, vapor sort yeah. of seeping out the window. Yeah. Hey, oh, it's a bit, of a bit of a sidebar here, but. Um, what are your thoughts on alcohol? Do you feel like alcohol is hitting the same way as tobacco in terms of, you know, the awareness about it? And the, do you think like 20 years from now or 50 years from now, whatever the time frame is, we'll look back and go, can you believe that, you know, alcohol was encouraged to drink for the antioxidants and for the health benefits? So, you know, a few things. And I have been involved quite mm. a lot in alcohol policy, both in, in New Zealand and internationally uh, over the years. There, there, are, there are a couple of key differences. First of all, alcohol is much more widely used. You know, here in New Zealand, 80, over 80% of people would have a drink of alcohol at least once a month. Mm-hmm. So it's a much more widely used product. Yes, it's a drug, and actually it's, it's a quite harmful drug. It's carcinogenic. It harms the fetus, so, you know, for pregnant women. There's really good evidence for all these things. Mm-hmm. There's no dispute. But it is much more widely used, and here is the thing. It can be consumed in... in in the right, in small safely, quantities, safely. Right. Whereas that's not the same for tobacco. Yeah. You know, tobacco is harmful at any level. So the, those are a couple of key references. So saying, there is a huge burden of public health. Um, uh, uh, or, you know, uh, there's a huge public health burden, family and uh, uh, violence, a whole uh, crime, mm-hmm. a whole lot of things that are associated with alcohol. There's a very strong association between alcohol and suicide especially in young people. Yeah. And these are issues we need to 
absolutely look at much uh, harder than we are. And, you know, I think the media's actually been pretty good at highlighting these issues, and you've got, uh, you know, Guy on Espiner, who's, who's just published a book talking about his experience uh, and, and a number of other prominent people. I think we will see policy change here because there is no doubt there is a burden of harm for alcohol uh, from alcohol in, in New Zealand, even though it's, it contributes, of course, really positively to our economy in many ways. Yeah, yeah. And there are, there are some sort of social benefits as well. Mm. Yeah, I had Guy on, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about his book, The Drinking Game. And yeah, since then, I've been um, just watching. I love my Pinot Noirs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've just been watching my intake and being yeah. more mindful about how much I drink. Look, it's really important. You know, we often talk about youth drinking as a problem. Actually, it's, it's often more people our age, yeah, it's middle-aged yeah. people, who coming home and opening a bottle of wine and consuming it either themselves or with a partner is not an uncommon mm. thing. And that is actually quite heavy drinking. Mm. And you're of that age when you went to university. Maybe it was different for med students, I don't know. You were of that age when you went to university where it was a badge of honour if someone said, Bloomfield, he can hold his piss. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there was no difference at medical, different at medical oh, really? school. You know? yeah. Of course, in those days, beer came in quart bottles and by the crate. <laughs> uh, and, uh, it, it, you know, I certainly had my, my share of experience there at university uh, – um, uh, but it's interesting to see. I, I, I don't see quite so much of that, um, you know, with, with kids who are in their now mid, you know, not uh, late teens to mid twenties. It's not quite so much mm. that um, going on. Maybe I just don't. Maybe I just pretend I don't see it. Yeah, no, no, no. I feel like that's the thing. I feel like they're, they're a little bit more like aware or wiser. Yeah. They sort of manage to drink more like the Europeans do, and don't necessarily get you know just drink to get intoxicated every time. Yeah. yeah, there's still there's still far too much of it, and, and of yeah. course it goes into availability. There's the whole issue of advertising, the links with sport and sponsorship. Mm-hmm. We have to address all these things. These were issues with tobacco. So on alcohol, I think we could do better, and we would benefit from doing better on that. Yeah, yeah. nice. Okay, so let's go back to med school. So this is where you met your wife, Libby. I did. Yeah. Where, can you remember that moment? Who 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 laid eyes on who first? Well, was this the, early on or midway well, here's through? The funny the... thing was, um, we uh, we uh, actually both remember seeing each other because uh, I was a year ahead, and and when you start medical school back in those days there was a thing called Freshers Camp and all the medical students would come together. There was only 100 in each class. It was a pretty small, you know, quite a close group. And the Freshers Camp was run by the students from the year above and I was involved in running it and I can still remember seeing her arrive at Freshers Camp with a friend of hers. Uh, but um, we didn't actually start going out till about halfway through our fifth year at med school and we were married a year later. Um, you know, I, I could, we can still both remember the time, of course, when it happened, and we knew, and that was that. And, and you know, yeah, we're, we're thirty-two years down the track, and amazing, uh, still um, enjoying each other's company. So it was like a slow burn, like a friendship for a while. Well, um, we knew of each other more. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, interestingly, it was her brother that kind of I got to know, and he he did the matchmaking. Uh, interest, you know, sort of. So it was outside of medical school. Uh, he was quite keen for us to get together, and he's still a, a, a great friend. And um, you know, uh, we, we we were very close as, as a family. Yeah. Was it fairly mutual? Was his, were you keener than her initially, and you had to win her over, or vice versa? Or well, this, that was the thing. It was kind of a you know, it was mutual. And uh, oh, that's nice. So the moment arrived, and suddenly that was it. We knew, and you know, you know, I can safely say within two months, it was she. Was she that, it was it was my wife that, that raised getting married first. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, within two months, <laughs> and it was more. The question was, so when are we going to get married? That was the. It wasn't a you know, or shall we get married? Yeah. Like when you know, you know. When you know, you know. Um, and after that point, the pressure. She was pressuring you to propose. 
Like, no, no, we just <laughs> planned it all out because yeah. the fifth year of medical school is the big one and you have exams at the end of the year that are quite substantial and we did a lot of study. She's a, she's really smart. She's an A-plus student. I am not an A-plus student. So I, I did have the benefit of her, um, her diligence uh, did sort of brush off on me and I got my best marks ever at medical school in that year. But we just, we decided as soon as the exams are finished, we're going to get engaged that, that day. And so we, we got engaged that same day. I did the traditional thing and went and kind of semi-asked her father for permission. Uh, <laughs> and he was a parent. So I think we're, we're sort of, you know, uh, we're, well, they were, they were delighted, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're great. As I said earlier on, my parents have passed now. So mm. it's lovely to have her parents that in a sense, my kind of... Um, uh, now my, my parents and we're, we're all very close it's just a lovely thing yeah yeah, yeah well I've, I've just turned 15 both my parents are, are still alive but obviously they're getting older I think um, yeah in, anything after the age of 50 if your parents are still around you're doing you're doing pretty yeah, lucky aren't yeah. you can you remember the proposal was it a romantic proposal or yeah well of course it, this wasn't a surprise you know I didn't see yeah. a ring out we had gone and <laughs> chosen the ring yeah, we'd yeah. gone and chosen the ring and we, we but we did we went down to the waterfront there on Tamaki Drive Mission Bay and just um, you know, formally, I proposed to her, and it was just lovely. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a special thing, really. Um, and uh, yeah, it's nice to still be mm. kicking around together. Um, oh, absolutely! Quite a few years later, is there is there any, any sort of secret or anything that you've you know you hold you think oh. is the the key or the cornerstone or the the pillars to your successful marriage? Uh, yeah, the, well, it's a bit like leadership. The the the, the hardest domain of leadership is leading self. And so the, the 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 best way to have good relationships with other people, including with your you know your lifelong partner, is to is to understand yourself really well and be on that that journey of maturity and growth and yeah. and. Uh, but fundamentally, it's also about communication. You know, you've got to keep communicating about what 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 what's going well and what's not going so well, and just you know, it's the same with anything. Yeah, that's. And a lot of hard work. I mean, that's the other thing is you've got to put effort in. You've got to put work in um, to relationships. We do it. We do it all the time. But, of course, the person you're kind of spending your, your, your life with, uh, you've got to keep putting the work in. Yeah, and I suppose that's the hard thing about it, especially like um, during the last three years for you. Like if you're busy at work all day and you're doing these one o'clock briefings and you come home, the, probably the last thing you want to do is have a conversation or talk about mundane but very important you know, home stuff. Well, well, that's the challenge, and you know, Libby was fantastic. She kept our home COVID free in both the literal and the metaphorical sense. So when I came home, it wasn't a debrief on COVID. She wasn't asked me, "Oh, what, what, you know, what's the latest?" She would she would watch the one o'clock stand up with, with everybody else. But um, uh, the the thing was, um, I did, tr- and I've always tried to come home because you know I've I've been in senior roles for quite a while, and so you've got to come home, and it's you, you can't come home and just just crash on the sofa and say, mm. oh, grab me a beer, I'm just done. You've got to come home and have energy for your whanau. You've got to be your best self. Um, and there's no, you know, you're in the wrong job if you're coming home and just feeling completely shattered. That doesn't mean you don't come home and, and you're not tired. But the thing was, and you've alluded to this, was my headspace. So, you know, a classic conversation would be, you know, and it'll be, you know, would say, oh, there's a couple of things I need to talk about with you, you know, just general stuff. And I'd say, I've just, I've just got a head full of stuff at the moment. I've got this. I'm just working through. Um, and she would say, quite rightly, when can we talk about it? And I would say, I can't even think about when, you know, when might be a good time. You speak and, to my PA. Uh, speak to my <laughs> Get an appointment. But the thing was, when I did finish, and you know, when I sort of hung up my boots, as it were, at the end of July last year, and 
suddenly got my brain back and it made me realize I was carrying the co- like, uh, the analogy I used I was carrying the covid thousand piece jigsaw puzzle in my head the whole time mm-hmm. and it was a jigsaw puzzle where I didn't have the benefit of the picture on the box to start with and every bit of information that came along I had to work out where does this go what's the picture and that had taken my entire virtually my entire brain capacity for two or three years so when I you know left when I walked out of the building suddenly when she said when Libby said uh, oh can we talk about a couple of things yeah <laughs> yeah, let's do it right now, you know. And and oh. you know what a relief for her. Yeah. And she'd been so patient. So yeah. uh, we, well, we enjoyed I... a six month six months of kind of just doing that. Catching up on her big list of her yeah. big to do list. Oh, tell tell you what, there was a long list of things I needed to do oh, around the house. I can imagine. But we could enjoy doing them together without yeah. the pressure of, you know, thinking, Oh gosh, I've got a I've got Mike Hosking at five to seven tomorrow morning, better start, you know, mm. you know, mentally preparing for that. Yeah, is that a stressful thing? Like if if you're Actually, we can probably fast forward and we'll get into the get into the pandemic stuff because I'm mindful of your time here. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've been thinking about you and what, what you do a lot because it's, in, in terms of those one o'clock briefings, for the journalists that are in the, in the room, it's like a win for them if they can catch you with your pants down. Or yep. if they can catch you off guard. And I think one thing you were very good at is, um, you know, just just being honest and being knowledgeable, saying when you knew something and saying when you didn't know something. But if you say you don't know something too many times, that's when they go, this guy's a goon. We've got to get him out of here. So you're in a room of people that are basically trying to – it's like you're, you're batting in cricket and each of them is a bowler that's trying to bowl you out. Yeah. That, is, that is stressful. It is stressful, and I'm glad you used the cricketing analogy. Cricket got me into trouble at one point because I went to a Black Cats game when I wasn't supposed to if I <laughs> haven't been invited. <laughs> but, but the cricketing analogy is a good one you know, because the first six weeks or so of the pandemic when, when this was all going off were the most stressful because there was so much uncertainty. You didn't know where it was going, and I was literally waking up at 3 in the morning on the dot in a cold sweat. I'd be you know, dreaming COVID. It was just occupying my sleeping and waking time and thinking, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, it's it's all going to go badly. I'll get thrown under the bus. You know, I wasn't so worried about myself. I was worried about making the wrong calls, giving the wrong advice. Mm. But then one morning, I don't know what it was, I just got up and I thought, hey, it's okay. You, you've trained. 
you've got um, you've got great people around you. All you can do, and I've been starting to do the um, the stand ups by this point. Yeah. And I'd had some really helpful feedback from my team when you know I'd started it, the stand ups had started to become a bit of a thing, and this was before the lockdown. And, and you know, it was who was this Doctor Bloomfield guy? And people were watching, and and there, were, there was something funny that someone had put on social media after the stand up that day. And I got back to the ministry, and my team were all there huddled around the computer, twittering away. And they said, "Come and have a look at this." What, what was it? So this I, is pre. This, this is, is pre the lockdown. Right. So because so this was wasn't six, spread your legs. No, no, no this way. was just generally you know the kind of uh, it was when I was you know because of become a daily thing and there was big decisions maybe it was one I'd done with the PM or, or with the minister but they they showed me this and I can't even remember what it was but one of them turned to me and said we don't get it we just see you up there being yourself every day mm. and I said tell me if that changes because that was all I could do was be myself and I got up one morning and think just just play a straight bat mm-hmm. that's all you can do um, so you never know whether it's a googly coming down or a bouncer but you know you've just got to play a straight bat and for my part, I had the advantage of not being a politician, and you've made this point. You can say, actually, it's okay to say, and people don't expect you to have all the mm. answers. So it's okay to say, we don't know that at the moment, or I don't have that information with me, but we will get it to you, you know, straight after this. Yeah, but if you say, pull out that card too many times, that's when yeah. people are going to be like, this guy, yeah. we need someone else on there, someone that does So know. this was the point, is that because we were in that situation where nobody knew, I think people, okay. you know, the public's actually pretty discerning. Mm. If you say you, if you're the minister of finance and say you don't know the latest um, inflation rate, well, there you've got a problem. <laughs> but if it's clearly emergent information, and this is the point, yeah. I mean, I, I, I did make sure I was incredibly well briefed, including on the detail. And so, one of the things I, that gave me confidence to hold that kind of overall narrative was knowing that if I got asked a question, it was, "Well, what proportion of Pacific um, have now been vaccinated?" or, you know. What was the what was the ethnic breakdown of the cases um, uh, this week? That I would be able to pull that information up, and then that helps give people confidence. Actually, this person they may not have all the answers. That's okay, but they it's they, got a lot of answers. They've got a lot of answers. Yeah. They know what they're doing, and so you're trying to build trust and confidence. That was the key currency. Mm. And in terms of building trust, of course, and this is again the advantage I had over politicians. There's no mileage in a politician saying we've changed our mind. You know, whereas I, I, I had to do that a number of times. Mm. Think about the evidence around masks. It, it, it was a year in before WHO changed their advice. And, of course, you get roasted. The media go, well, how come you've been saying for the last year masks? Actually, the evidence has changed. That was our previous view. Now this is the advice. And, again, people are pretty discerning. And, yeah. of course, the biggest one to do is when things don't go right and you stand up there and put your hand up and say, we could or should have done better. Here's what we're going to do about it. And when we were sort of having a chat beforehand, you know, I talk about the media's favourite F-bomb, failure. Mm -hmm. You look at their headlines, they've got a favourite C-bomb as well, crisis. So everything that doesn't go perfectly is a failure. They overuse the word. But I I did start to respond to them by saying, it's not a failure if things don't go right. It's a failure if we don't review and learn and improve. And, you know, in, a, in that sort of situation where you don't know what's going to happen, the last thing is you need is for your people to stop pushing the pushing the boundaries yeah. and because of a fear of failure. So it was really important that when things didn't go right, I fronted up, never threw any one of my people under the bus, but said, no, I'm responsible, this is what we're doing about it. Because the, the, the last thing you needed was for them to stop taking risks, as it were. Because yeah. we had to make decisions so quickly. 
Yeah. Now, what was the cricket thing you were talking about before? You said you got in trouble for going to... Oh, well, I got an invitation right. uh, from New Zealand Cricket. Very kind of them to go and um, watch the, the Black Caps versus Australia. It was one of the 2020 games, right. actually. New Zealand, uh, Black Caps had a great win over Australia at the stadium um, and uh, had, had a lovely invitation afterwards down to the dressing room and uh, great chat with Kane Williamson. What a fantastic guy. Oh. And that whole team, I mean, the culture, you could just feel it in the, mm. in the room, got some photos. You'd be mad not to accept the invite. Oh, well, he, got, and he, he, he got me. He gave me one of his jerseys that, you know, with signatures on it. But here's the thing as a public servant. Uh, you, decl- you, you get given a lot of things, and we got a lot through. You know, I got boxes of wine would arrive through the pandemic, and big, you know, trays of muffins and all sorts of things, and you declare it, and most of it I'd give away to the staff, and the odd thing, when I left, I was able to take with me. But the point was, I was not supposed to have accepted the, the, the hospitality oh, as a public servant. Who, who snatched? Well, yeah, well, well, partly it was because <laughs> at that time, they, they, they were planning for a tour overseas, and the vaccine was just become avail- becoming available, and there was a suggestion that my invitation to the match was helping uh, bump them up like the queue, access, access yeah, right. which wasn't the case. But, you know, it's all about perception, mm. and it's really important that as a public servant you're just seen as being, you know, integrity is so important in terms of public trust. Yeah. Well, yeah. You're, you're, I mean, you're an incredibly intelligent guy. Were you mad at yourself after that because you thought, shit, I should have seen this potential loophole? Well, uh, yeah, and, you know... You, you, but then you look at the photo of you and Kane and you're like, yeah. well, that's still pretty Well, good. I mean, interesting, the public response was very much on the side. Look, if he wants to go to a bloody cricket game, he should be able to go to a cricket game. He's working pretty hard. Um, but, you know, it is an important thing. And, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I kicked myself a bit because I'm incredibly meticulous about that. Mm. Cause, because as a chief executive, you declare even the invitations you get that you don't take up. It's all out. It's all public. Your salary, every expense um, uh, is, is public information. And that's all about transparency and about maintaining the integrity of the public service. Mm. So anyway, I did my penance, uh, <laughs> made a big donation to um, uh, might have been Wellington City Mission to, you know, to, that would have been the price of the tickets and uh, these things, uh, you know, move, move through pretty quickly. You still got the memories of the game as well. So there's that. Oh, that's right. So, so during this whole um, the, the one o'clock briefing thing, like, what did an average day for you look like? You, you mentioned before that you'd wake up in a, in a wake up at three a.m. in the morning and start thinking it through. Was there just a lot of reading involved? Or what, what did a day look like? So three a.m. you wake up. Well, that was the early days. I yep. did settle into a slightly better pattern, but so there were there were two sorts of days. There was the day when I was, once a week I'd do the morning media round. We shared that, you know, the Prime Minister, uh, Chris Hipkins, uh, I'd do one day, Grant Robertson, Friday was his day. And the morning media round, um, you know, was probably seven or eight, bang, 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 starting with Mike Hosking at five to seven. You've got to be awake for that. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, Radio NZ, there'd be um, uh, a couple of TV things. There'd usually be one, two or three other uh Radio stations that wanted to have a chat in maybe maybe a couple of papers. So, you know, we'd do an hour and a half just banging through those. Now, those mornings I'd be awake at three and it'll be start to just preparing in your mind and, and focusing and kind of thinking, okay, have I got this? When you're doing um, uh, ZB with Mike Hosking, you, you're not given a, uh, you know, like a, like a gauge in advance about what he's going to ask. Well, that's where you've got, you know, if say, you know, of course, and people recognise this, I was not a one-man band fantastic team behind me and my the media guys uh, well, I'll call them guys you know mm-hmm. men and women were just fantastic they'd been at work at six going through all of what was 
coming through on the stories, what Mike was talking about that morning, you know, what everyone was covering. So then we'd sit down before the first one and we'd do 10 minutes, they'd brief me and say, here are the issues. By the way, this came up overnight. Oh, have you seen this story from the UK? So so I'd be briefed ahead of those. But yeah, other, you know, part of it's also... And, you know, Mike was great because I sort of talk about, you know, people go, oh, how do you put up with it? But, you know, I'd ring, you'd call in, and of course it was a pre-record um, about 10 minutes before, and he'd say, g'day, mate, how's it going? Okay, let's get into this, and we'd do our thing, and he'd do his shock jock kind of questions, and I'd, you know, play him a straight bat, and then at the end he'd say, thanks, mate, good as ever, and off we'd go. Now, the last interview, he... Some people, a lot of people have heard this because he's quite, he's very popular. I mean, he's good I, at his he's job. He's huge and he's he, very, very good at his job. He's very good Phenomenal. at his job. And he said to me, so actually, we've had a, you know, a few interactions. Uh, how would you rate these discussions? Out of 10, what would you give them? And I said, oh, Mike, you know, I'd say I'd give them a 7 to 8. You're trying to do your job as well as you can and I'm trying to do mine. And I turned it back to him. I said, what about you? And he said, oh, well, I don't rate your performance very highly. No surprise. <laughs> Didn't lose any sleep over that. And he said, there's one thing I will say is you always turned up. And, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? Sometimes I knew, you know, I was going to get asked, when are you going to resign? Because something had not gone right. Or, and I'd, or I'd get a roasting. Or, you, you know, you expect that. But here's the thing. I was turned up. And I never, t- I don't think I ever turned any interviews down. Sometimes it might have just not, been, you know, might have been a timing clash, because part of my responsibility was to just be available. Yeah. The stand up on a typical stand up day, ten o'clock in the morning, almost to, I could set my watch by it, my cortisol levels would start to go up. Mm. Classic response, you know, um, no appetite, but sweaty, heart rate goes up. Just starting to mentally prepare, physically prepare. I do two hours prep with my team, going through all the data going through what my, you know, my lines, we'd be working with the Prime Minister's office and then I'd race down the road, I'm a pretty fast walker, uh, race down the road to the PM's office, we'd spend an hour going through what we are going to say, finalising it all, um, making sure we had the latest data, uh, getting really clear about our messages and then down and I'd talk about, you know, we'd go down in the lift together to the ground floor of the Beehive and walk into the theatre and it felt like walking into the Colosseum. You know, not, oh, not the Colosseum now as a tourist attraction, yeah. but what, what I assume it was like <laughs> a couple of thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the intensity of it, because as you say, you've got all those reporters there. and They want to catch got, you out. You know, they want to catch you out. And, and P, uh, personal protective equipment, PPI, uh, you know, PPE was the classic one. Mm. So, Dr. Bloomfield, are you saying that every health professional in the country has got the PPE they need? Well, that's what we're, that's what we're absolutely aiming to do. Well, I've got a text here from Maureen, a nurse in Kaitaia, and <sighs> she has... She, they want these masks, and okay, you give us the information, and we'll follow that up. So, you know, the big thing is, and this is the thing that people remember because I get, I had such lovely letters and emails, and people could still come up to me every day on the street. The thing people remember about the stand-ups, it's the old leadership adage. People don't remember what you said or did; they remember how you made them feel. Yeah, hundred percent. And the most important thing that I did, and of course the prime minister was doing it, was being calm. To, and it just gave people a sense of assurance. Mm. We've got this. So whatever was being thrown at me, my job was to. And it's about that, you know, leading self. You know, don't let the. I couldn't let the media give any sense that they got under my skin. Yeah, I had some. There yeah, was some you never rolled your eyes. Sweet or... times, you know. Yeah. Actually, take every question for what it is. And, and people say to me, "How did you put up with it?" They would say this, <laughs> ask the same question over and over. And I would say, it's fine. That was a gift because that meant I could give the same answer. 
and reinforce my message. Yeah. You know, so I just treated that as a as a gift. And uh, and you know, and I said, and by the way, I knew that I didn't need to get annoyed because the rest of New Zealand was doing it on my behalf. You know, yeah, oh, one hundred shouting at the TV. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, so what was it like? Um, behind the first of all, like pre-pandemic, what was your relationship like as the Director General of Health with the the Prime Minister? You had anything to do with her? You saw her occasionally? Yeah, I had a little bit to do with her because of th- three things that had already happened um, while I was DG. Quite big things. Um, the measles? First of all, well, no. the measles outbreak in Auckland, but first of all, and the first time I met her was after the terrorist attack on the mosques in Christchurch. Right. And I still remember that vividly because that weekend, we that happened on the Friday, mm. and of course we met that night. Over the weekend, we met f- as a group because because the health response was part of it. You know, the, all the injured people were in uh, Christchurch yeah. Hospital, uh, and uh, so I, you know, I was involved in all those briefings. We met four or five times on the Saturday and Sunday, so that's when I first got to know her and other ministers. Then we had the measles outbreak, and you know that was a big lesson for us because we were too slow out of the blocks. I commissioned a review. We took the findings really seriously and actually in the end I got quite involved in that including fronting some of the media there mm. and then and, and then later in the year you know to cap it all off in December we had Fakari White Island right. another disaster and of course mm. that um, required a, a really significant health system response as well so you know we were off the back of all those three things so I did know her and I guess we had a, a bit of a, a relationship there and, um, and and a degree of trust already mm. yeah because from from like my perspective and New Zealand's perspective, all we saw was you guys like washing your hands, walking in and up yeah. to the um, up to the lecterns. What did she, does she call you, Doctor Bloomfield or Ashley? You call her Jacinda or Prime well, Minister? Well, this is quite funny because when I talk to groups of kids, sometimes um, they'd say, "Oh, is Jacinda your BFF?" <laughs> and, and, you know, because that was the impression that they only saw. You know, it was always the two of us yes, together. You know, yeah, we were like yeah. a unit, and and I know there were some kids that thought we were married. You know, it's it's quite funny, isn't it? Uh, no, uh, look, her, her number in my phone, it's changed now, but, but her number in my phone said PM. And even when she'd call me in the evening, I'd, I'd never called her Jacinda. The, the first time I did that was after she stood down a few weeks ago and I texted her and said for the first time, you know, hi Jacinda, and just sent her a message just to, of support, just to see how she was. And she responded back, actually, uh, oh, dear Sir Ashley. Oh, I've been wanting to say that. Um, she, she would tend to, she would call me Ashley when we were, it was just two of us, but in front of others, you know, in front of ministers and so on, she, it would be Director General. So, so she called you Ashley. I suppose if she, if, if, she, if she wanted you to call her Jacinda, she could yeah. say, please call me Jacinda. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's, the, that's right. That she didn't, yeah. and I wouldn't have. And, and yeah. you know, this is the thing: is you, you, she's the prime minister. It's the office that you're you're sort of respecting mm. and acknowledging, and so on. So um, yeah, I sort of tell a little bit of an anecdote about Winston Peters because he was in the government, of course, when um, when the pandemic started uh, for those first couple of years, and I, I I knew how he was feeling about me and my advice because if he was happy, he would call me uh, Ashley. So Ashley, tell me this: if he wasn't, it would be. So, Doctor Bloomfield, <laughs> it was a it was a really clear signal. Anyway, helpful. Oh, that's yeah. funny. No names necessary, but did, in terms of the um, the press gallery or the journalist, did you come to dread anyone in particular? You see, someone I didn't. That, no, I didn't. No, I um, look. You know, again, the the they their job is to hold people to account, and if if New Zealand's a, a well functioning democracy, and it is. It needs a number of ingredients, but one of them is a is a 
good, strong, independent media, and they're doing their job well if they're holding the public service and the government to account. I mean, it's not all their role, but it's an important part. Um, And on a couple of occasions, especially when they were coming under fire, you know, there were some, some of the journalists that people sort of took a dislike to because they were tough. Tover O'Brien's. <laughs> Tover and Jessica. Tover First Tover, then Jessica. The, the question I sometimes get when I'm doing my speech, speeches is, how do you decide between who goes first between Tover <laughs> and, and Jessica? And and but, you know, um, they were doing their job. And I can tell you this, uh, especially in those that first year, after we'd done a stand-up when we were in a lockdown and I was walking out, most days, one or other of the journalists as I was walking out would say, thanks to your team for their hard work. You know, so yeah. they're playing their role. Uh, I got invited to the press gallery parties, and you know that's a nice opportunity just to connect. And I, you know, I've done a few interviews recently. I just did a little bit of media around the whole political neutrality thing. I, I, I just, I don't have any residual issues. I think we we've got some really good journalists in New Zealand. It's a tough environment. Yeah. My goodness me, uh, being in the media, but uh, they. If the, if the response in New Zealand overall was a really good one, the media played an important role there because of the, them fulfilling that role of keeping and holding us to account. Yeah, although if we want to go back to the cricket analogy, there were a lot of wides being bowled, like uh, yeah. asking you questions about drinking bleach or there was yeah. a question about um, a hospital visitor having sex with a COVID-positive patient. Yeah. yeah, there were a few things, you know, <laughs> that, uh, um, that you know, might, might create a good front page or a good line for a subby but um you know you just got to again keep playing the straight band of course if it's a wide you just um (laughs) leave it don't swing um there's an article i read in the guardian oh i've got a passage of it here uh dern has occasionally referenced bloomfield poking fun at her as she tackled her own epidemiological learning curve and said i'll keep the details of his sporadic mockery of me to myself anything that springs to mind Oh, Sounds look, like you're, uh, you're taking the piss out of Prime Minister. Um, well, um, yeah, that doesn't sound quite so good, does it? <laughs> well, look, he, I, I will say this. is uh, Jacinda Dean's got a fantastic sense of humour. And actually, of course, you didn't see it up there when, it, from me either, but I use a lot of humour in my in my day with my team. It's um, it's one of my uh, my wife's big into character strengths. She's done it on mm. all our family. It's one of my character strengths. But, of course, when you're fronting a pandemic, you don't do that. But, yes, we would have quite a bit of banter. And, and one of the things that I would – one of the things the Prime Minister is, has referred to, and I think in one of her interviews, was at one point um, we had a couple of – it was when there was just a few cases there was, uh, and there were two people in Masterton we were trying to track down and um, – uh, or trying to find out some information, and the Prime Minister was asking question after question. In the end, I, I said, uh, "Oh, Prime Minister, would you like us to give you your cell phone numbers?" And she said, "Yes." Before she, and then she, she sort of says, "Before I realised he was pulling my leg." You yeah, know? yeah. Um, but uh, so yeah, we did have a. I would say that was part of just you know, of course, humour is a way you deal with the pressure and the stress. But um, it it did help us, I guess, just develop the sort of relationship of trust we needed you know she needed to know that when we were doing the the stand-ups that I was going to be reliable and and uh, if she threw things to me I was going to be able to pick them up and, and vice versa if it was a political issue that mm. I was being asked about she would step in there so I guess you know often the way we connect with people even if it is a, a, a work relationship and a purely sort of uh, formal relationship is through you know mm. kind of knowing each other a bit as people and, 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 and I guess on that human level we certainly enjoyed a little bit of banter. Yeah, yeah. and you, you guys are catching up um, privately. Yeah, we're going to have a cup of tea uh, at some point just to, uh, you know, I'm, 
the, the Prime Minister finishes up, uh, well, sorry, Jacinda Ardern finishes in Parliament in a couple of weeks' time, mm. that's it. Um, and so, you know, we, we uh, just thought, now we're both out the other side, have a cup of tea, mm. and I'm interested, if she, you know, just to kind of see how she is, really. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's got, you know, Neve is starting school fairly soon. I know she, 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 and she's talked about that she's so looking forward to just being able to spend more time with Neve, be there for her when she starts school, and, of course, I'm sure spend much more time with Clark as well. Yeah. will appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a crazy thing that you've both been through that links you both yeah. together for life. Like, I've had... um. Uh, Jimmy Neesham on an early episode of my podcast and he talked about his relationship with um, Martin Guptill yeah. just some innings they've been through together that just links them for life in a, in a bond that no one else can imagine and it's the same for you and Jacinda Ardern did you copy any of the like, I, I feel like as far as um, leaders go like she copped it pretty bad and in yeah. terms of like partners of leaders I feel like Clark's had it worse than almost anyone in memorable yeah. history you know there's just been so many absurd rumours what about you how did you fear did you have you copped but, any sort of? Yeah, I copped a bit, uh, and you know I was aware of it. But I, do, I, I, I was, I never felt unsafe. Um, you know, I got advice around my security, and if, and there are some, there are some people out there, and you think of some of the things that were being said around the protests in Parliament about hanging people, and I was on that list uh, about. Bodily, doing you know bodily harm and and so on to people, but uh, let's make let's put this on the table. It is extremely gendered, and it is it is deeply misogynistic. So you know mm. if you're a female, you know so not just um, just under a dune, but people like Susie Wiles and others who were commentating were subjected to just this absolutely and there's no other word for it vile and very. Um, a very you know deeply unpleasant kind of abuse, and, the, and and there's no doubt in my mind that because the prime minister at the time was female, that made it you know just layered the unpleasantness on, and you, you know including including when she was out and about with with you know Neve with her people just shouting actually disgusting stuff at her, mm-hmm. and it, um, it's not okay it's just not okay i was never subjected to any of that and i know that a big reason for that even though i was you know clear i wasn't the prime minister but i was the architect of a lot of the advice around things that upset people like mandates and um uh, and so on and the vaccination program uh that you know i never was subjected to that sort of vitriol which Mm. she unfortunately was yeah, have you had anything in public? I, I, you sort of find, people have had on the show on the podcast that are polarizing. Um, they generally say any mean stuff about them is online, and face to face, it's n- nothing but Absol- positivity. Ever. Absolutely, my experience. Yeah, uh, you know, this is interesting mm. because I'm sure there are the, some of those people see me and they either don't have the courage or you know, you know, I'm thankful they don't come up and say anything. Every day, literally every day, people come up to me from all walks of life. Uh, I've had many, many thousands, and only one, only one of them has said something kind of, well, I hope you have a horrible day. (laughs) Sick burn. Yeah, but, you know, it was kind of like, well, you know, if that's the worst of it. But literally, I still get people, and I was at something last night, I was saying earlier, you know, at the university here, launch of these wonderful coupe scholars, that the 18 amazing young people for the year, and the parents of one of them came up to me, oh, you know, we're just huge fans of what you and your team did. And, you know, shook my, the fellow shook my hand and the woman said, can I just give you a hug, which I was really happy about because, I, 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 you know, I love connecting mm. like that. And that's just a lovely thing. And it was the letters and the cards and the messages that I got every day, usually to me and my team, yeah. that just kept us going. Uh, you know, classic one, this, this 
envelope arrived. It said on the front, Dr. Bloomfield, Wellington, I think. That was the address. <laughs> Found its way to me. 92-year-old woman from Invercargill. She said, I've, in that beautiful, you know how old people write with that yes, slightly spidery yeah, yeah, writing. Yeah. Beautiful card. I've never never sent a card or anything like this before, but I just have to thank you and your team for looking after us. I know I'm alive today because of what you did for us. And, you know, that's gold. And I could, every, every week I'd have an online um, kind of, all staff thing, especially when people couldn't come into the office, and I'd just be able to read through some of these things, and that just kept people going. Give you yeah, the motivation. Totally, yeah. yeah. Um, there was um, uh, probably the biggest viral moment, I think, through that whole period is when you were doing a stand-up with um, Chris Hipkins as uh, Minister of Health, not Prime Minister, um, and he, he had a slip of the tongue, and he said, spread your legs. Yeah. Um, and what, he was meaning to say, stretch your legs. Correct. Right. Yeah. You can be seen smirking, and then um, you raise your eyebrows to someone in the wings. Who... What was happening there, behind the scenes? Someone's uh, laughing and well, they make eye contact with you? Look, I, I wasn't doing it at anybody. <laughs> I I was just standing there thinking, you know, and sort of, I couldn't help myself, this little smile. I thought, did he really say that? And then I could see, I think he, he, compa- he kept his composure incredibly yeah, well. Well, so did so you. So I, just, did, yeah. I just did this little eyebrow raise. He hassles me about it, says I'd be a useless poker palm because you know, <laughs> can't keep a poker face. Well, what was happening was the reporters who all had masks on, it was at that time, mm. they all had tears running down their faces. They were laughing so hard. And, of course, no one else could see this. And then at the end, when we finished, the room just absolutely erupted. Um, so, you know, uh, it was it was quite a moment. I just had to sort of try and get through the rest of it without <laughs> kind of cracking up. I, I just couldn't do that. But anyway, um, I sent uh, now Prime Minister uh, Chris Hipkins, I've changed his number to PM in my phone. I sent him a text when, when he got uh, got the role and he sent a nice one. He'd, he'd sent me a lovely text um, uh, uh, at the end of the year, last year, and, and when I got my New Year's honour. But I said, oh, well done, you know, and, and great stuff. And he, and he sent this text back saying, Yep. Um, uh, thanks very much. It was your eyebrows that got me here. <laughs> you know? So uh, I said, well, they're available any time if you need them. Oh, it was a great moment. Yeah. Um, another moment, which I don't know if you remember doing this, because I'm sure you do a lot of media and stuff, but there's um, a segment done by um, the Stuff website called Kia Kids News. Oh, yes. And um, there was a, a thing I watched yesterday, some kid asking you about farts and whether you can catch COVID through farts. Yeah. Like, how, do you, how do you answer something like that? Oh, well, it's not great. I mean, that, uh, those are the sort of things I love doing. And I should say, yeah. um, I got a lot of big envelopes of letters from classes of kids. You know, their teachers would set them an assignment through 2021 to write a letter to Dr. Bloomfield and got some amazing There's a school in Bay of Plenty that sent me a letter. They'd been tasked with inviting me to their school and giving the reason why I should come. So it was kind of, dear Dr. Bloomfield, if you come to our school, we can play bull rush on the backfield. And, you know, dead look to Bloomfield, if you come, I will buy you a cup of coffee from the Caltex. Uh, not from the BP, because their coffee's rubbish. You know? <laughs> so, and then occasionally yeah. I do Zooms just with, with classrooms yeah. of kids, and it would be just gorgeous. So you just got to take these questions as they come. You yeah. know, kids are great, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. oh, they're fantastic. It's a great yeah, But I guess yeah, I, could, I could say I'd been used to having curveball questions thrown at me in the media stand-ups, not necessarily about farts, but there were some pretty <laughs> unusual ones. Oh, there were, like the, the drinking bleach one that I mentioned before yeah. and questions about fire. 5G and um, you were you were very good at batting them off though I think yeah and yeah another thing that you went viral for was um, doing a, like a drum and bass video that was for um, rhythm and vines like let's make summer unstoppable I wanted to ask what, what does an unstoppable summer look like for you 
Oh well, um, uh, lots of family time, and you know we, we've had a, we had a lovely summer this time. We've got a little place down at Nelson Lakes where we go down to, and um, had that for a wee while. And so it's just time in the sun, actually just sitting on the beach uh, with friends out in the boat doing a bit of stuff, nothing flash. Um, getting out into the hills for some for some walks, and of course some biking. Uh, but you know we're just so lucky in this country. We've got so many lovely places you can go to, and beautiful beaches. So sun is 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 what it's all about really and but i i really like it down at the lake i love swimming in the fresh water it's cold up the, uh, up at uh, 600 meters above sea level but oh, it's, it's great it's for the endorphins spot. though isn't it it's great for the endorphins so you know we um and, and here's the thing you know we had a couple of pretty amazing summers mm. here in new zealand in the middle of a pandemic that no one else could enjoy you, you ask any other no other country in the world was doing these big events Mm. Yeah, crowd with with hot crowds, concerts, and so on. So we had a lot more freedom through COVID, even with even though we had the lockdown periods. And of course, Auckland had, had that really long lockdown in twenty twenty one. I still usually apologise when I'm talking to crowds <laughs> up here, but we had nowhere near the the length or extent of lockdowns that mm. most other countries had. And they had the double whammy of actually having their health systems kind of overridden and yeah. and large numbers of deaths. So we enjoyed some good summers here. Of course, what we've seen from this last summer is summer's going to be different in the future. And it may well be for the north of the North Island. It's less of a summer and more of a wet season. Mm. Um, and uh, we're going to have to be really thinking hard about how, we, how we're how ready for that and prepared for that. Yeah. There's a couple of other things I wanted to ask you. So um, the knighthood thing, becoming a sir. Yeah. When, when do you first hear about that and what's your first reaction? Well, uh, I got this... You know, it's not like the old days, apparently, where a horse would ride up to you somewhere and, you know, <laughs> someone would hand you this parchment. Uh, an email arrived out of the blue from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and I opened it and I read it, and I thought, well, what's this about? You know, I, I, and I had to call my wife, and I said, Libby, come and have a look at this. Just, can you read this? What's it saying? You know, I really was quite taken aback. And uh, we were sort of quite shocked. And, of course... You do get a heads up, and you're, the first heads up is to ask you if you uh, if this is offered or, or you know is conferred on you, would you accept it? And, and which I think is a reasonable question to ask. Well, we had quite a chat about it and talked about it, and I decided yes, I would. Uh, and again, uh, it's not not so much about me, but actually it is. It's a lovely public recognition, and. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful honour, really, uh, and for me, it's also it shows the degree which that that, that the whole effort was appreciated. You yeah. know, the effort of the public service. I was the face of and, and the most visible kind of person in that effort because of my role. But you know, New Zealanders saw what the public service does for them day in day out to look after them and to try and make their you know improve lives for New Zealanders all New Zealanders and um, so that was sort of a part of my rationale at least for, for being for being for replying and saying yes uh, I will I will accept it and then you know kind of lovely then just before Christmas to get the letter from from the Governor General who, who I know from we've known each other because she she some of her work has been in public health over the years and she put a nice little handwritten note at the bottom so mm. yeah. Yeah, so your parents passed before Director General of Health, before coronavirus, before the the knighthood. What would they make of all of this? Oh, I think they'd be immensely proud. And um, and as I said, yeah, you know, sure. uh, I think about them every day, and I and I sort of feel them with me because they they they're the most important 
um, kind of influence on your life. They've shaped me, who I am. I'm lucky I've got, I'm close to my brother and sister who've been so supportive and, 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 and so lovely, and, and my wife's family as well. And so, yep, my parents can't come to the investiture, which is in late May, but my wife's parents are coming down as my kind of surrogate parents. And oh, nice. I have uh, Libby and, and the one of our children who isn't overseas, and, um, mm. and uh, my brother and sister and, and partner. So what does it make Libby now? Did she become a lady or a dame? Well, she can, but she decided pretty quickly. There is still this very anachronistic opportunity to use the courtesy title of lady, so she would be Lady Bloomberg. (laughs) She decided very quickly that wasn't going to be her. Uh, And, you know, I don't... Sounds very Bridgerton, doesn't it? It does sound Bridgerton. (laughs) And, you know, I don't... I I haven't even used... I haven't used the Sarah on anything yet, you know. Uh, It's not uh, something... You're you're quite different to the mad butcher, aren't you, who now goes by the Facebook name Sir Peter Leach. Yeah, well, it, it might come along, I don't know. Oh, I'd own it, own it. Jeez, I've taken up so much of your time. Have you got a little bit longer? Yep, uh, look, I'll just just take one because okay. I've got to get off and I've got a, a coffee appointment, yeah. Okay. Look, it's like he's on the one o'clock briefings. I'll take one. Yeah. Maybe I could okay. just make a comment about resilience. Okay, yes, please. Yeah, I was yeah, going to ask if you have important. a re- resilience plan. Yeah, I don't have a formal plan, yeah. but I had a, a huge lesson for me during COVID was for the first time in my life and in my career, which had, had some pretty high-pressure moments. I've had really good physical, mental well-being, but I did reach the... I reached the point where I needed to take some days off. I yeah. was, um, and and the real um, insight for me around resilience was that you, I know resilient people, and my mm-hmm. goodness, they've got enormous capacity to to do stuff. But they don't just keep going; they don't burn out. They know their boundaries, their physical and mental and emotional boundaries, and they take active steps to stay within them and so they are very in tune with what their body's telling them and so that's the key to resilience is resilience is listening to your body being active and about being physically fit looking after your mental well-being whether it's through you know meditation mindfulness or whatever it is making sure you've got time to do the things you enjoy doing spending time with people who you who you connect with and who are the ones that you know your whether it's your whanau or your close friends that you know, just nurture your soul, and and that's that's the fundamental thing about resilience. It's not about keeping going, regardless. Yeah, I, I feel like everyone needs to come up with their own resilience plan because what may work for you won't necessarily totally. work. But are, are there any, any absolute must-haves for you every day? Like, are you a cold shower guy? I have a three-part resilience strategy. It's, it's opening the curtain and checking the sun's come up, and if the sun's come up, the world hasn't ended overnight, and it's going to be a good day. Coffee's a good thing, and coffee drinkers know that. But also, for me, it was, especially on those tough days when I'd get up in the morning and think, I'm not sure I can do this, you know. I'm, I've My tank's empty, you know. was just getting into work and starting to interact with people and and the energy and the commitment and the goodness that you get from that. And then, you know, I always say you're in the right job if you've got more energy at the end of the day than when you started mm. with it. And so that, that for me, was the thing. It's just spending time with people, with great people. Yeah. yeah. And were you good at recognising that yourself, or does it take Libby or someone close in your team to go, Ashley, yeah. whoa? I, I, I learnt, I, I guess, and I guess I've learnt over the year, years to kind of recognise what my body's telling me. Yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, thank you so much for coming over today. Appreciate really it. appreciate everything you've done for the country. I appreciate you being on the podcast. And um, all the best for the future, whatever that may bring. Sir Ashley Bloomfield. Kia ora. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening all the way through. A little bit of housekeeping, a couple of loose ends to tie up. If your podcast app allows, and I know Spotify and Apple do, please leave a rating or review. It helps more than what you could imagine. Alternatively, uh, if you haven't done this already, You can watch these episodes on YouTube. Just search Dom Harvey and you'll find it.
Thanks again to Radix Nutrition, R-A-D-I-X, for sponsoring this episode. Check them out, radixnutrition.co.nz. They do protein powder, recovery smoothies, and much, much more. Made from their incredible factory in the Waikato and shipped to the world, their products are, in my opinion, the best thing to come out of the Waikato since, well, ever. But I may be a little bit biased. I'm sure there are tons of other great things that have come out of the Waikato. I just can't think of them right now. Check them out online or on Instagram, Radix Nutrition, R-A-D-I-X. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. And I do hope to see you next week on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.